You're listening to The Real Investment Show. So, uh, you know, Renault, the automobile, automobile maker. Yes. Yes. They the, make the, the French ones. The, the French ones. They make the world's ugliest cars. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and now they've made the world's ugliest flying cars. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So <laughs> it's a bird. It's a plane. It's a Renault. Yeah, exactly. I'm just gonna wrap buy this one. <laughs> let's let's put a shoebox on top of a drone. That's what it looks like. So it, it's 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 a flying car that looks like it's already crashed. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this is gonna be some of the problem. Again, uh, you know, people can't drive on the freeway already. Oh, yep. Yeah. You know, right. can we imagine when we put them all in the air to fly? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just going to be this is going to be like get, get a box of popcorn, sit back and watch. <laughs> and how many rednecks in Louisiana are going to try to shoot them down? That's going to be the big thing, right? <laughs> or you mount one on your flying car and now you've got yeah. dogfights and traffic. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's 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 not so far from the truth. <laughs> A whole road, other road, level of road, road rage. rage. <laughs> <laughs> Beat me to the punch. Yeah. Uh, as I was saying here just for the break, uh, yesterday, um, Jerome Powell was in, had prepared remarks for the CARES Act hearing. And, and, of course, you know, one of the things that everybody's looking for right now is for him to become a lot more dovish, potentially. And, you know, that's the expectation, right, Be, that – the Fed really doesn't want to hike rates and they really don't want to taper their balance sheet because they realize that if they remove that support from the markets, that it's going to become problematic for them to do their other work. Again, we have to go back to Ben Bernanke in 2010 when he discussed the fact that doing QE was needed to lift asset prices. And by lifting asset prices, that would create better consumer confidence and that would help economic growth. And that worked for a little while. We've talked about, however, the, the, this idea of efficacy of these monetary policies. Every time you do these monetary policies, it requires more and more to get the same relative effect. And there's two reasons for that. The first reason is if you go back to 2010 and take a look at the amount of equity assets that were owned by the top 10% of households, it was much lower than it is today. I should say, let me rephrase that, that's backwards. It was much higher than it is today. Today, 90% of the stock market is owned by the top 10% of income earners. And this has been a very sharp advance in that percentage of ownership just over the last couple of years, in particular because of the spike in, in the balance sheet as well. And that certainly boosted the values of invested assets. Well, the problem with most Americans is they don't really have much money in the stock market. In fact, the bottom 50% of Americans have virtually no money in financial equities outside of maybe their 401k plan at work, if they have one. Again, when you take a look at the number of participants in 401k plans, it's about 25% of Americans that actually participate in their 401k plan. Only about half of Americans actually have access to a 401k plan. And of that half that do, only about half of those actually contribute. So for the bottom 50%, they have very little equity ownership of the financial markets. The next 40% have 
a little bit of equity ownership, about 9% of the market, and the rest of it's owned by the top 10% of income earners. So the problem with QE, of course, is that as you continue to inflate asset prices, more and more of that money shifts to the top 10% of income earners who don't need the money. They're fine. Take a look at savings, right? We hear a lot of talk about savings rates. We have a, we have a massive savings rates right now because of all this liquidity, you know, checks to households. All these Americans are flush with savings. No, they're not. Savings, just like the financial markets, are primarily contained by those in the top 10% of income earners. Why? Because they're already living to their normality. I should say. If I give somebody that's, you know, if you're, let me rephrase that. If you're, if you know, if you're making four or $500,000 a year, $300,000 a year, whatever it is, um, you know, probably during the pandemic, your lifestyle didn't change too much. Maybe you didn't travel because of the pandemic. Maybe you stayed shut down a little bit. Maybe you didn't go out to eat as much. But for the most part, you're already consuming at whatever rate you're going to consume at, right? You already own the cars that you're going to buy, and you already own you know, all the gadgets you, that you want to own. There wasn't a whole lot on your wish list that was sitting out there that you missed out on because you either had enough in Even if you lost your job, you had enough in savings to cover the gap until you got reemployed. So the accrual in savings was really a function of those in the top tiers of income earners that postponed a trip or didn't go out to eat as much or didn't do some things that they wanted to do because simply they weren't able to do it because of the, 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 the virus and the shutdowns, right? So that money accrued on their balance sheet. But really, as far as the other things about life, they were still buying their food and, and doing what they wanted to do. So when the lockdowns have reversed, yes, they went out and took that trip that they had postponed. And yes, they went out to start eating again on a normal basis. And we've seen that in the economy, but that did draw down that excess savings that they had built up over the last year because of just lack of ability to consume, not lack of cash. And so we still see these very large savings balances. Everybody goes, well, there's all this money on the sidelines. No, there's not. It's just in the top 10% of income earners, and there's nothing for them to buy at the moment. They're not going to take four trips this year because they missed out on two trips last year. They're just going to go back to their normal consumption habits, so that excess cash is just going to accrue there for a while. But for those in the bottom 80% of the economy, they have no savings. They're already back. Take a look at what's going on with credit card debt is a good example. You're already starting to see a, a big surge in credit card debt as individuals have to go turn to debt to, to try to make ends meet because of inflation. They're not buying more stuff. They're buying the same amount of stuff at higher prices, and they don't have the cash to cover it. So you're seeing that turn back to spending on credit. So, you know, this is, this is the problem. And what the, the trap the Fed has got themselves into, of course, is if they now let the, if, they, if, they, if the financial market's correct, then they suffer that loss of confidence across the markets 
and the economy because the economy, the, the stock market's correcting and people assume that if the stock market's falling, something bad's happening in the economy. So it affects everybody when the stock market corrects. The problem is, is that the people that are most affected are the people that have the money invested in the markets. That's the top 10%. And of course, a lot of those are the high net worth investors that are clients of Wall Street. Wall Street and the major banks are, of course, you know, have a lot of influence on the Fed. So not surprisingly, Jerome Powell, who's been talking about the need to start hiking rates and tapering the balance sheet because of inflationary pressures, took the Omicron variant as the first excuse he could find to lay out the case for maybe having to slow his roll a bit. And that's what he said yesterday um, in his comments, his prepared remarks. Here, here's the actual prepared remarks. The recent rise in COVID-19 cases speaking, and the emergence of the Omicron variant posed downside risk to employment and economic activity and increased uncertainty for inflation. Greater concerns about the virus could reduce people's willingness to work in person, which would slow progress in the labor market and intensify supply chain disruptions. So there it is. That's code for, hey, we're watching this, and if it begins to pick up steam, we're going to you know, have to slow, our, slow tapering and, and potentially delay hiking rates, despite the fact that we've got inflationary pressures. And so this kind of really goes back to that question, is inflation transient or not? And that's the big battle. Yesterday, President Biden had CEOs of Walmart, Target, Kroger's, Foodline, others, of the White House to talk about supply chains and talk about inventory levels and those type of things, you know, Walmart CEO said, hey, you know what, well, you know, we've got 10% more inventory this year than we had last year. We're in pretty good shape going into the holidays. Supply chains seem to be easing up already. Uh, according to the CEOs, they said that they're already starting to see some improvement in the supply chains, the movement of product off of ports. So if that's the case, if the supply chain is finally starting to, to break loose here, then inflationary pressures should start to come down. And this idea of transient inflation may work in the Fed's favor. But there's other things in the economy that suggest that maybe inflation isn't so transient. High oil prices feeding through to higher energy costs, of course, higher heating costs, natural gas prices. A lot of hopes right now for a warm winter, maybe bring down some of the natural gas prices. We'll see. But while there's hope that the supply chain problem is improving and inflationary pressures are declining, the problem for the Fed is still this very fine line between what they're doing in terms of monetary policy and the impact long term to the financial markets and the economy. Be right back after the break. Welcome back to the show this morning. So in the last segment, talk a little bit about Jerome Powell now starting to already starting to make his dovish twist to being a little bit more friendly to the financial markets. And of course, not surprising here, you know, the big concern moving into 2022 was that tapering the balance sheet and a hike in interest rates. Of course, that was expected to start in June of next year. Now, again, right now, you know, the markets are still pricing in two rate hikes for next year. 
and a reduction of the balance sheet really still on the table at the moment. Um, so that hasn't changed. But my point in the last segment was is that these comments in front of the CARES Act committee is, is really kind of that first shot across the bow that, hey, um, maybe we'll have to slow down here a bit because of, you know, potential impacts to the economy from the virus. Now, the, the question that I think we have to really ask ourselves is really twofold. First of all, we continue all these monetary support actions, which are certainly inflating asset prices, because, again, the, the theory is, is that if I have $120 billion a month in QE coming into the markets and zero interest rates, then I can afford to overpay for assets. And this has created a lot of speculative fervor in the markets, not just by retail investors, right? Um, this has happened. We've seen you know, Wall Street taking full advantage of this. Record IPO issuance, SPAC issuance, uh, record leverage loans uh, being put out to the markets right now. Um, so we're seeing you know, it's a, you know, the risk appetite is very high. Mergers and acquisitions are kind of off the hook right now. It's literally money laying in gutters. If you want to sell your business right now, this is the time to do it. People are paying stupidly high valuations for businesses currently. So not surprising. That's what happens when you have a lot of money in the markets. It's got to go somewhere. Money's got to get put to work. If you know, if a hedge fund sitting on you know, or a private equity firm or whoever is sitting on millions of cash, they're not making any money, and and they've got to make money in returns for their clients. And so the problem with too much money chasing too few deals is that we start investing money into really kind of crappy companies, just trying to get the money deployed. And we're seeing this in a lot of the IPOs that are coming out. We have a, a lot of IPOs hitting the market. In fact, a record number of them coming to markets that have no income. Lots of hope they'll someday generate some income, but they have no income. You know, we're, we saw a company just IPO recently with over a billion dollars worth of market cap that has 35000 a year in revenue. Kind of tells you what the problem is. Lots of hope. Right? We saw this back in 1999, by the way, same thing. But this is, the, this is the distortion in the financial markets that's caused by this massive financial liquidity push. And, of course, trying to remove that is problematic. Because, again, for as far as the Federal Reserve is concerned, if they begin to reduce this monetary liquidity, if they begin to hike interest rates, which is effectively tightening monetary policy and slowing the economy, which is what higher interest rates would do, that makes it problematic for them when the market begins to reverse course to price in less liquidity and higher interest rates, right? That's just a function of how the markets are going to work. So not surprisingly... The Federal Reserve is in this trap, and they realize they're in the trap that, you know, for, for a decade, they had zero interest rates and no inflation. Economic growth kind of limped along at 2%, which was fine, but they had no inflation to worry about. Now, all of a sudden, they've got inflation to deal with, and that's different because, of course, one of their primary mandates is full employment, which effectively, by all terms and manners, we're at full employment in the economy. You've got record low unemployment, uh, jobless claims right now. So for all effective purposes, we're at full employment and you've got inflation running well above the Fed's goal of 2%. So from a monetary policy standpoint, they should be hiking interest rates. 
But they're looking for an excuse not to, and this Omicron variant is the excuse not to. Look, and we've got a long line of the Greek alphabet left to go in terms of variants. So plenty of excuses out there for one variant after the next. You know, if you go get a flu shot, and this is the funny thing about vaccines. If you go get a flu shot, it covers about five variants of the flu. There's like 150 or something odd variants of the flu, seasonal flu. You go get the flu shot, you're getting the five, you know, kind of primary flu variants that are out there. And, and, and that kind of works through some of the rest of them. But it's still not surprising if you still come to, even after you get the flu shot, it's not surprising you come down with a flu, right? It's just, you know, you're kind of taking a crapshoot inside of just maybe hoping you get the right variant of the flu that the vaccine works for. But this is the problem with this coronavirus variant is that, and, and we talked about this when, you know, back in 2020, when this whole thing first hit, we said, look, we'll, you know, we'll eventually get a vaccine, but that vaccine will be for one or two versions of the variant. But then we're going to get multiple variants of this COVID vaccine. I mean, sorry, this COVID virus that is going to be problematic and we're going to continue to fight this thing. And because this is what happens with viruses, once you know you start attacking the virus back, it mutates to fend off what you're attacking with. That's how a virus works. So we're going to go all through the Greek alphabet eventually with variants of COVID-19. So we've got a choice. And the Fed's got a choice. We can keep using these as, as an excuse not to slow monetary policy and try to normalize equity markets or we keep doing this and we keep inflating a larger and larger financial bubble and eventually the bubble's going to pop it's just a function of when but whenever you have the type of speculative behavior that you have in the markets it eventually is going to run out of money and that's the whole thing right it's the whole thing with government, too. Uh, you know, there's an old saying about government. Eventually, you run out of other people's money. You can fund all these things on debt, but eventually somebody's got to pay for them, and it's the people that are earning some income that are trying to pay off the interest on the debt. Yeah, you can give away free college and free all this other stuff. That's fine and dandy. No problem with that at all until you run out of other people's money. It's the same thing in the financial markets. Eventually, everybody that's going to buy will have bought. And eventually, the selling comes for one reason or the other. And you never know what the catalyst is that causes the selling. But, but eventually, you trigger that point to where the selling begins in earnest. And the buyers are there. Of course, there's always buyers in the market. It's just a question of where they are. And if we go back to 2020, you kind of really got a good glimpse of that when you saw that 35% decline in a month. That was very unusual to run that big of a decline in a single month. And that was because the, the gap between the people wanting to sell and the people willing to buy was very large. And it's gotten worse since then because of what the Fed's done. So the Fed's really in this very tough position in, in terms of navigating markets and trying to maintain some fiscal stability and, and monetary stability in the markets. And then we, and we talked about this just, uh, uh, just uh, yesterday in our blog post that the Fed will be the cause of the next crisis. And the reason is that their whole idea and structure of monetary policy 
is to maintain stability in the markets. And this is why you saw Jerome Powell pivot so quickly yesterday and, and start to look for this excuse of the Omicron variant to slow his role in terms of tightening monetary policy is because he needs to maintain stability in the financial markets. And all that means is, of course, is that nobody's willing to push the big red button at this point, right? But that's the problem with stability. The more stability you have and the longer that you have stability, inst the risk of instability increases. And the problem with that is that eventually when stability gives way, the period of instability is very fast and very quick and very large. So, you know, the bear markets of the past where we saw bear markets last you know, 12, 18, 24 months, those are going to get more and more compressed as we go forward. The next real bear market that we're going to have may last three months, may last four months, may last six months. Because the correction will be so quick because you've, you've built up this compression of prices in the markets. And so when that spring explodes, it's going to move very quickly in the opposite direction. But this is the problem with stability, right? And, and we've talked about this. Stability ultimately leads to instability. It's a question of when and what causes it. And again, right now, what the Fed's hoping for is that they can keep stability in the markets. And again, you know, everybody has this fear of missing out. I can't miss out on the markets. The markets are going up. I put money in. I make money. It's, it's a guaranteed ATM. That's the psychology. And, you know, retail traders think they have it all figured out, right? They just buy the, the most shorted stocks in the markets and they force a short squeeze to make markets go higher. That's fine, but eventually Wall Street figures that game out. And again, don't forget, uh, you know, there's, there's very little difference between Wall Street and the casino. The Wall Street, is, Wall Street is the house in this particular casino. Wall Street always wins this game at some point or the other. It's just a function of when they win it. And, you know, this is always the interesting thing about gamblers when they go to Vegas. They think that they're, they're going to beat the house long term. You may win a few hands. You may win quite a few hands. But you better know when to leave the table because eventually, if you stay at the table too long, the house will win. Every single time. All right, quick break. we back talking about markets. Your money. Don't go away. More of the Real Investment Show coming right up. Article this morning, the rave reviews of Tesla's Model Y keep coming in. Call the vehicle critically flawed. CNET has joined Consumer Reports in publicly trashing Tesla in a new, in a new review of the company's Model Y. Reviewer Tim Stevens, who is likely to become the next target for Elon Musk on social media, penned a scathing review last week. He reviewed, it, he reviewed a Model Y about three months after CNET purchased one. The car got a 6.7 out of 10 in a review that Stevens admits up front will not be good. Uh, you should absolutely not buy one. That was the starting line of the review. Um, he goes through the entire thing. He says, I, you know, he says, <laughs> as he goes through, you know, kind of this whole review process, you know, he took exception with the car's visual panel. 
stating that it kind of looking at autopilot status and navigation prompts means, you know, having to gaze well downward uh, to the bottom of the display rather than keeping your eye on the roads. Um, you know, this as he goes through the entire thing, this is going to be one of the things. Here's the thing uh, about this. This is going to be one of the interesting dynamics as we get into next year. Um, you know, when you start taking a look at the number of models that are coming into the markets, right, from different manufacturers, et cetera, it's going to be a, a competition to who can create, you know, the best car, who can create, you know, the best environment, um, you know, all these type of things for electric vehicles. So, you know, this is this is the beginning of that change. And eventually, look, the reality is, is that, you know, car makers are very, very good at changing consumer habits. And, you know, if you kind of go back in time and look at some of the vehicles that you see on the road today, you know, five, six, 10 years ago when these cars were first introduced, some of them didn't sell very well at all and required a lot of incentives for them to get sold and get on the road. But eventually, the automakers changed the taste and demand of consumers to where these cars became more adopted for whatever reasons. And so automakers are very good at that. And they understand consumer behavior. They understand consumer psychology very well. And they understand how to eventually change those styles and demands that consumers want into what automakers want them to consume. So if there's a higher margin product or whatever it is, they can eventually tailor that to get people to buy that car. And this is not new. I mean, everybody knows this, right? So, you know, here is so over the next decade, right, we're going to see more and more electric vehicles offered by more and more companies. You're going to see, you know, different benefits and features and ranges and all this other type of stuff. And this is just going to be, um, you know, kind of this changing of consumer demand being driven by automakers as much as it's going to be driven by, you know, demands for electric vehicles. It's just it's going to be a function of supply and demand. And that's okay. We'll we'll eventually see this see this play out. But what's going to be interesting to watch is is going to see who the players are going to actually become. There's a lot of new car car makers coming to markets right now. We've seen this before in history, right? Um, you know, we saw DeLorean, we saw the Studebakers, we saw all these, you know, uh, competitive automakers come to markets. And some of them did okay, some of them didn't. DeLorean had its own issues. <laughs> His car kept going back in time for some reason, I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, you know, we'll, we'll see who survives. And, and some of these companies that people are investing in today, you know, whether it's and, and I don't know who the players are going to be, but whether it's Rivian or whether it's, you know, Lee or Neo or um, even Tesla. Right. Some of these automakers will not be around in the future. Because they'll lose out to the competitive advantage for whatever it is. And so, you know, it's one. And here's the point I want to make is that it's OK to invest in these companies, just realize that some of these companies aren't going to make it. And so fundamentals do ultimately matter to these companies. 
And, you know, when you go back and look, does the company have the ability? And this is one of the kind of the flaws of the analysis of Tesla, which, again, I don't have any problem with Tesla at all. But from an investment standpoint, you know, the idea is that, oh, well, yeah, this company is worth so much more. In fact, this one company is worth more than every other automaker combined because it's not really an automaker. It's a technology company. It's not really true. They make autos. And eventually somebody's going to come out with a different type of battery. And somebody else is going to dominate the battery market. Somebody else is going to dominate some other phase of the market. At the end of the day, Tesla makes autos. That's what they do. And so they're going to ultimately wind up competing in that automobile market. And this is the same thing for all, all, all makers, whether it's Ford or GM or Chrysler or Porsche or Ferrari or whoever it is, right? The world's ugliest car company, Renault, right? I mean, <laughs> these all these companies compete in the same environment. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, those fundamentals will matter. So my, my whole point about this, and this really kind of comes back to, you know, the speculative nature of the markets and the things that we have going on right now. You know, there's a lot of things that are happening in the financial markets that are very clear that we're in a financial bubble. And so it's important to always come back to the fundamental basis of investing because that's what protects you. Look, eventually this cycle will turn. And the difference between those that lose 50 to 80% of their money versus 10 to 20% of their money will be the differential between fundamentals, who has them and who doesn't. For those people that are investing heavily into companies with no fundamentals, they're going to lose 50 to 80% of their money, if not more. During 1999 and 2000, 2001 and two, and through 2007, 2008, I saw people lose 90% of their money or more because every company they, went, they owned went bankrupt. So fundamentals matter. And, and fundamentals may not seem to matter right now, because of the speculative nature of the market that we're in, but fundamentals matter, and they matter when it matters most, and that's during the decline. Because money will seek out fundamentally stronger companies during a decline. You're still going to lose money, okay? If we get into a rip-roaring bear market of you know, 20 30 40%, whatever it is, and eventually that'll happen for whatever reason, you better have some fundamentally strong companies, companies that actually generate revenue, have a balance sheet, have cash flows, those type of things, because those are the companies that will survive. A lot of these other companies won't. And so my whole point here is just to be careful. You know, it's always important to know what you own rather than just buying things because they're going up in price. And we're seeing a lot of that action in the markets right now. People just buying stuff in the market simply because it's going up. That's the only reason why I can't, you know, this stock was up 80% yesterday. I need to buy more of it. And, and uh, you know, when I scan for stocks, I see a lot of companies that are moving up sharply simply because they're moving up sharply. There's no fundamental value to it. There's no real business plan to it, et cetera. And those things tend to revert to their mean just as fast as they went up. And, and one of the things that we're seeing now, of course, is the most shorted stocks in the index 
that are moving up the most. And again, you know, as what retail traders have, have kind of figured out is that if they can go attack these stocks that have big short positions on them, they can start pushing because of low liquidity in the markets. They can start pushing these stocks higher. And then that forces the people that are short the stock to cover. They've got to buy it, which forces the price up even more. Right. So they figured out that game near term. And, you know, if you take a look at the most shorted stocks in the markets and the ones that have the heaviest call options on them by a large degree, Tesla is number one in both categories. So it's a it's a bit of a risky game, but it's not. And, but again, it's not just Tesla. Let's take a look at, you know, some of the most heavily shorted stocks in the index right now. Here's the top 10 Tesla, S&P Global, Moderna. Of course, it was up like 10 percent yesterday. Bank of America. And that's why. Right. These big moves. Right. A stock moving 10 percent a day. Something else is going on other than just good news. Moderna, Bank of America, Home Depot, Intel, Comcast, International Business Machines, IBM, Adobe, up big yesterday as well, PayPal Holdings. You know, and, and when you dig through this list, you see a lot of the usual suspects, right? Pfizer, another good example. Pfizer up big yesterday as well. News headline was, of course, the Omicron variant. But you take a look at how much market cap that the company added yesterday relative to what the benefit of whatever additional vaccine they might sell at this point because of the Omicron variant. You know, the company went up more in valuation than they can possibly earn from selling the vaccine, right? So, again, it's that mismatch of what's happening in the markets. But when we go through there, you know, it's you're, you're seeing companies that – you know, are, are potentially extremely risky going up a lot. And so, again, just the point here is, is to understand that we have the speculative nature in the markets. That's okay, right? This has been driven by a lot of liquidity, low interest rates. Hey, I get it. It's all good. Just realize that things will eventually change. Global flows that have been over a trillion dollars this year will slow down probably next year. We're already starting to see those kind of peak. There's too much money chasing too few assets. That will change. So just as you review your portfolio and, and look at the risk that you're taking, just make sure that ask yourself this one question, right? In the downturn, which of these companies will survive and which won't? That's one sure way to help make sure that you survive the next downturn when it occurs. That's the show for today. Realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.